Your film is now ready to be shown. Good evening. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Last week at Stanford University, former President Barack Obama gave a keynote address at a Stanford University Cyber Policy Center symposium entitled Challenges to Democracy in the Digital Information Realm. This week, many of the issues Obama discussed were brought into sharp relief when it was announced that billionaire Elon Musk will acquire Twitter for the price of $44 billion. For reactions to the speech and to Musk's antics, I spoke with David Kay, professor of law at UC Irvine and the former United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Promotion and Protection of the Right to Freedom of Opinion and Expression, Emily Bell, director of the Tau Center for Digital Journalism at Columbia University, and Jamil Jaffer, director of the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University. But first, I think it's important to give you a sense of Obama's speech. It was an hour long, and you can find a transcript in the video at Tech Policy Press, but here is just under five minutes of the speech, edited very slightly. After that, you'll hear from my guests. We have a choice right now. Do we allow our democracy to wither, or do we make it better? That's the choice we face, and it is a choice worth embracing. Now, in the early days of the internet and social media, there was a certain joy in finding new ways to connect and organize and stay informed. There was so much promise. I know I was there. And right now, just like politics itself, just like our public lives, Social media has a grimness to it. We're so fatalistic about the steady stream of bile and vitriol that's on there. But it doesn't have to be that way. In fact, if we're going to succeed, it can't be that way. All of us have an opportunity to do what America has always done at our best, which is to recognize that even when the the source code is working, the, the status quo isn't, and we can build something better together. This is an opportunity, it's a chance that we should welcome for governments to take on a big, important problem and prove that democracy and innovation can coexist. It's a chance for companies to do the right thing. You'll still make money, but you'll feel better. It's a chance for employees of those companies to push them to do the right thing. Because you've seen what's out there and you want to feel better. It's a chance for journalists and their supporters to figure out how do we adapt old institutions and those core values that made those institutions valuable, how do we adapt that to a new age? It is a chance for all of us to fight for truth. Not absolute truth, not a fixed truth, but but to, to, to fight for what deep down we know is is more true, is right. It's a chance for us to do that, not just because we're afraid of what will happen if we don't, but because we're hopeful about what can happen if we do. You know, over the last couple of months, we've seen what it looks like when a society loses the ability to distinguish truth from fiction. Mike McFall and I were talking backstage, and my first time in Moscow as president, we, we gathered with all these civic activists, Putin, at that time, had receded from the, the foreground. And, and you had all these folks who were working to make Russia better. And then we were reminiscing and thinking about 
that moment of possibility and, and what might have happened to him. And now in Russia, those who control the information have led public opinion further and further and further and further away from the facts until all of a sudden almost a quarter of the country's combat power has been damaged or destroyed in what the government is claiming is a, quote, special military operation. That's what happens when societies lose track of what is true. On the other hand, the last couple of months have also shown what can happen when the world pushes back. We have seen it in the people, including some of our Obama leaders in Europe, who are organizing on social media to help Ukrainian refugees, offering food and shelter and jobs and rides. We've seen it in an IT army of volunteers who work to break through Russia propaganda and reach out to mothers of Russian soldiers, asking them to call on Putin to bring their sons home. And we've seen it in the combination of old and new media, a viral image of a Russian TV editor walking into a live shot with a handwritten sign calling for an end to the war. The handwritten sign was a tool. TV's a tool. The internet is a tool. Social media is a tool. At the end of the day, tools don't control us. We control them. And we can remake them. It's up to each of us to decide what we value and then use the tools we've been given to advance those values. And I believe we should use every tool at our disposal to secure our greatest gift, a government of, by, for the people, for generations to come. And I hope you agree with me, and I look forward to you joining in the work. Thank you very much, everybody. All right. Thank you. So, Jamil, you wrote on Twitter after watching Barack Obama's speech that you spent a large part of your career suing him over issues, including the First Amendment. Uh, so you didn't expect to agree with him, but you actually came off feeling somewhat positive about what Barack Obama said at Stanford. What what did you like about his speech? Yeah, I actually thought it was pretty good. Now, that that may be partly a function of the expectations I went in with. You know, I thought there were some really good things about the speech. So one one was that, you know, it didn't make the mistake that we sometimes do of attributing all the problems of the current speech, our current speech environment to social media. It uh, acknowledged that social media has made our society more inclusive and more democratic in some ways. Uh, I thought I thought those were you know good points to make in framing the in, in framing the conversation. But then he went on to say that you know some of the uh, speech pathologies that you know we've been uh, concerned about recently uh, can quite fairly be attributed to the business models and the practices of the social media companies. And went on to think a little bit about how those particular pathologies could be you know could be answered. And there he you know he uh, he characterized himself maybe you know somewhat ridiculously as a free speech absolutist. I'm pretty close to a First Amendment absolutist. I believe that in most instances, the answer to bad speech is good speech. Uh, I do think he came to that set of questions with at least a sensitivity to free speech uh, concerns and was suggesting uh, the kinds of regulatory interventions um, that I think free speech uh, advocates could and should get comfortable with. Um, so all of that I thought was positive. Um, 
you know, I think it's fair to criticize Obama for not having gone further than that and actually, you know, going into more detail about it. What, what are these regulatory interventions that, that he has in mind? Uh, you know, this was not, I, I, I wouldn't take the position that this was a, a, you know, an intervention that really moved the ball forward in some, you know, some uh, major way. Uh, but the fact that the ideas he was endorsing were, for the most part, good ones uh, surprised me. Maybe, David, I will ask you to kind of jump in there. You know, you basically, to Jamil's point, said, you know, hey, nice speech, but this is, you know, in, in many ways, a kind of generic review of where we've got to. The conversation's gone beyond this. What, what was your take on, on this speech? I mean, I, I share Jamil's reaction. I thought the speech was good. I, and, and maybe there's a part of me that's just, you know, too in the weeds and, you know, too much following the, the issues of disinformation and all that. And um, I guess I shouldn't have expected more. I mean, I don't think Barack Obama is the type of person who who would get up and make that kind of challenging speech. But but I felt it was a bit of a missed opportunity. And and this came up in particular in the way in which he he kind of defines he says, you know, what am I going to look for in terms of how the platforms behave with respect to disinformation? And he basically said, are they doing it in a way that promotes healthy democracies? Yes, of course, that's true. But, you know, he's got the biggest platform. And I, I had hoped that he would be a little bit more specific. He would be a little bit more, I don't know, provide something a little bit more actionable, but both for, for companies and for governments. And, um, and he didn't do that. And I, I think I would have liked to have seen that because, because an intervention from Barack Obama that is just, here's the problem, is just confirming what a lot of us already think, as opposed to a Barack Obama speech that says, here's, here's what you need to do. And I think that his, an intervention like that would have been you know, really pretty meaningful. And he just didn't, he didn't take that on. Emily, you and I have been teaching a class together uh, for a few years now in tech, media, and democracy. I sort of felt like this speech, to some extent, summed up our class in many ways, could really sort of serve as a kind of easy, maybe cheat sheet for getting our students inculcated into these issues. But you were also, uh, you know, happy to hear Obama give these remarks and yet also uh, not sure he went far enough. Yeah, I think that's fair. I would support really what both David and Jamil said. I hate it when people agree on podcasts because apparently that's not what podcasts are for, but it was not a bad speech, but I did feel like this is a song that was being sung in very small clubs to fans of you know 15 people in 2012, and now he gets to perform it on American Idol and it's 2022. And we just have to do better. You know, we really have to do better than this. Um, nothing he said is wrong. Make journalism better, tick improve media literacy tick, follow the outline of things like the Digital Services Act and think about duties of care tick. But it lacks a kind of fundamental, I think, internal reflection on how we wasted time when we had governments who could have arguably done some of these things sooner instead of broadly supporting the Silicon Valley uh, agenda of growth. We have companies who've not done well enough. So I, I felt that it should have been much more specific about not just what's needed from the public, not just what's needed from the, the companies and not, not just what's hanging around in the legislative atmosphere now, but 
what is the political agenda for the next 10 years on this or for the next 15 years on that? That's really what I wanted to hear and that that was missing. So let me put this to the group. One of the things that I found myself thinking after reading it was that when Obama kind of situated himself in this, when and when he issued his his regret, um, he started in 2016, 2017 with Russian interference in the election and, you know, kind of said, I, I regret perhaps uh, not recognizing the severity of these issues at that time. And he talked about his own actions in response to, to those events. Now, I've been writing my uh, memoirs lately, including reflections on events leading up to that election. The regrets I have, the things I might have missed. No one in my administration was surprised that Russia was attempting to meddle in our election. It had been doing that for years. Or that it was using social media in these efforts. Before the election, I directed our top intelligence officials to expose those efforts to the press and to the public. What does still nag at me, though, was my failure to fully appreciate at the time just how susceptible we had become to lies and conspiracy theories. But, you know, some critics looked at it and said, you know, actually, sir, uh, you were involved in this far before that. Um, and then your administration could have taken actions which perhaps would have set us on a, a very different trajectory. I don't know. Anybody here want to kind of grapple with that? I, one thing I would say about that, first off, that, you know, that that can be true. That's all true. I'm not sure it advances the current conversation all that much. I mean, I, I like to hear it and it's like, it's good to have that kind of background, but there's one place in the speech where um, this kind of solicitousness toward the companies struck me. And so he says that I pulled it up earlier. So he says, um, a regulatory structure, a smart one, needs to be in place. So a regulatory structure, a smart one, needs to be in place, designed in consultation with tech companies and experts and communities that are affected, including communities of color and others that sometimes are not well represented here in Silicon Valley, that will allow these companies to operate effectively while also slowing the spread of harmful content designed in consultation with tech companies and experts and communities and, and so forth. I was really, that was sort of weird to me. I mean, because we like, why do, of course the companies, I mean, the companies don't need any invitation to be a part of lawmaking. I mean, they, they're dominant in terms of the kind of money they're spending in Washington and in Brussels, you know, to, to ensure regulation that meets their business model. So I, I guess and maybe this also goes to my bit of discomfort that he's not pushing the companies to do more. And maybe that also ties back to his history, which is I think there's a part of him that still sees Silicon Valley as an engine for like democratic debate and growth and all that. And maybe like, but, but I think it requires, and honestly, uh, people that, you know, people like Jamil and people who at the night, uh, center are thinking in these terms, you know, it's like, and you are all, actually all of you are like, what can we do to incentivize creating new models that are actually, you know, sort of take the, the early vision of the internet, but actually create something new that isn't drawn or based on these 
present business models that aren't about the public interest. So I thought maybe that's a way to connect, you know, his current attitude to his past history. Isn't this Obama's MO? Like he, he goes to Silicon Valley and he describes the, the best possible vision of, of Silicon Valley to Silicon Valley uh, and hopes that they will live up to that you know, vision that he just described. That's what he did with the CIA in, in 2009, right? Uh, he goes to the CIA and he says, look, we all know what happened over the last few years. This isn't what you guys are like. This is really you know, what the CIA is for. And just hopes that that gap between what he's described and the reality will somehow, you know, somehow close. So, yeah, I, I mean, I take your point about the specificity or the lack of specificity in his, you know, in, in, in his speech that that was uh, it is notable that the speech didn't end with, you know, and here are the six or eight specific things that we, you know, we should do right now. I thought it was also striking that he completely left out certain things like, total reform of campaign financing. If you look at where some of this money comes from, and where it's going and what's actually fueling this, without a doubt, lobbying money, crisis management money, political interference doesn't just come from Russia. And that was just completely not addressed at all in the speech. Uh, and I felt that that was a bit like the France, you know, the, the, the Facebook whistleblower, the Francis Haugen tour of European regulators was the same thing, which is it almost feels like we're being shepherded into this version of a uh, regulatory future in which, as David says, the companies who really should be much further removed from this are being drawn into you know, solving this difficult problem. Um, when actually what we've seen is that when overseas regulatory bodies are really prepared to wheel a, a, a bigger stick, you actually get much more action much more quickly. So he does, you know, he mentions the DSA. But he doesn't actually mention the fact that you have to have a bit of a core of, you know, but you have to have really sort of steely political will to do this. And you also have to take some decisions that are not going to be very popular with, with politicians in general. So there was a, a political valence on some level to some of the things that he said. I mean, he called out, of course, the former president uh, for inciting an insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Um, he called out particular bad actors like, like Steve Bannon. People like Putin and Steve Bannon for that matter. Understand, it's not necessary for people to believe this information in order to weaken democratic institutions. You just have to flood a country's public square with enough raw sewage. And I did see you know, some headlines, uh, some comments from folks on the right who just regarded uh, Obama's speech as, as typical kind of liberal nannying of of speech and uh kind of anti-free speech um you know do you think that i don't know was there any way that he could have neutered that critique uh, or addressed that in any way is there any any way to to avoid that for me and this gets a little parochial but you know and and this is in a way related to the demagoguery that we're getting from elon musk right now about what free speech is I, I suppose that I would have liked to have seen Obama give a fuller defense for like a vision of thinking about freedom of speech online that is, you know, respectful of not only speakers, but all speakers and audiences and, and also, you know, framing a little bit how online platforms, they're not the, the, you know, speaker's corner. They're different. And the way they operate and the way harassment and abuse operates online as a tool to silence speakers, 
that's a meaningful distinction. And I think that, so from my perspective, giving a little bit of credence to the human rights model of freedom of expression, you know, of course it doesn't apply within, you know, like US regulation, but it's a good model for platforms in my view. And I just feel like we're in a moment where that, like the actual question of what is free speech is so fraught that I'd love to see him weigh in on that in a in a fuller way. I totally agree with that. I think he would have done a real service if he had spent some time talking about how much more complicated free speech is than people like Musk seem to recognize. And then it's not just a matter of, you know, leave this piece of content up or down. It's, you know, that's doesn't even tap into the, the complexity of the, the, the issues. Uh, it would have been great if he did that. Maybe he can do that in his you know, in, in his next talk, one one thing he didn't address at all in his speech is the First Amendment. And, you know, maybe the First Amendment is in the background here in the sense that there are regulatory interventions he would have proposed, but for his understanding of the First Amendment. And it may also be in the background here in the sense that you know, the reason he's referencing the DSA and not some major congressional initiative is that the congressional initiative didn't happen because people understand the First Amendment to preclude it. And, you know, this really is kind of the next, in, in, in my view, the, the next part of this conversation has to be about, well, you know, what are the limitations on our ability to implement these regulatory interventions that we, you know, all or many of us agree are so necessary? And, you know, is the understanding of the First Amendment that precludes those interventions a good understanding of the First Amendment? Or do we need to, you know, rethink the way that some of these principles are being applied to the digital public sphere. And, you know, I'm not, maybe Obama could have addressed that too, but it did kind of, you know, when I read the speech, that was sort of the set of questions that came up in my mind is that, well, you know, if, if, if this is your vision of the government's response to these problems, you know, what is your answer to the argument that the First Amendment doesn't, you know, is, is a bar to this kind of regulation? Yeah, I was just going to say, I think that's a really good point, because I suppose what I was trying to say, um, but which uh, Jamil nailed, is that really what you want from a politician is some guidance in terms of how this can be set into a regulatory framework, which is uh, the American public can be comfortable with. And that that was missing. And again, didn't refer to antitrust uh, unless I missed something at all, didn't refer to scale, which has been a key component of discussing this. And I do think that we are going through a, a phase now. He did talk about the reconstruction of the public sphere in Europe in post-World War II, which some of the communication scholars talk about all the time. But what he didn't really talk about is how the regulatory framework of that really was a very sort of significant set of reforms. And they didn't just happen in one part of society. They, they were they were whole society, but they were driven by government. And I, I think that's absolutely right in terms of what Jamil was saying, which is you really need somebody to say, hey, you know what, we can and should be doing this. Uh, and that's a big political agenda. And the idea that we have constitutional barriers to this is something of a, a, a phantom, or at least it's something that can be navigated. And this is how we should start to think about navigating that. So let's just swap over to the other big news in social media, because if anything, could, I suppose, push off the Obama speech, Barack Obama, from using his platform to talk about social media, it is Elon Musk, um, who, David, you've, you've called a couple of times a demagogue, that he's responsible for demagoguery. Yes, 
Um, I have. <laughs> and I, I actually think that's right. I, you know, in the same way that Donald Trump kind of bent and perverted Twitter around himself, you know, Elon Musk has that same ability. And it's extraordinary now that he's purchased the thing. So maybe I'll just ask the the three of you for your reactions and what you're watching as this unfolds. I mean, clearly we've got some months before he'll take control of the thing. So David, maybe I'll turn it to you first. No, I mean, I, I do think that his his kind of constant who, you know, if you don't agree with me, you don't believe in free speech is that's demagoguery. I mean, it, it's it's a complicated space. And you know, there there seem to be two different kinds of arguments out there right now. Like one is he's gonna just push forward with his, you know, rules like by their nature are an interference with free speech. And, you know, that could lead to kind of the end of Twitter, or at least a lot of people not finding it that useful anymore. Or he'll, you know, walk into into this new responsibility. He'll hang out with the trust and safety people, you know, the people who actually enforce the rules and often make the rules. And they'll say like, oh, I didn't realize it was this complicated. I don't think that latter thing is going to happen. But, you know, he might be faced with this reality that, you know, maybe advertisers will lean on him or whomever, whoever might might do that. But I think that there, it's it's just unclear whether the reality of the situation will, you know, will change his mind. He's kind of dug in on this. And I think it's it's unfortunate. I mean, I would say that this isn't necessarily the biggest tech news of the past week. I mean, in some respects, the DSA, its provisional agreement is the longer, because, you know, Twitter could could leave and we're still going to have this, in all likelihood, major new regulation that is going to shape, I think it's going to shape platforms globally because just because they operate on scale. And that's, that's just a bigger news. I mean, we don't know all the details of what's in it, but in many respects, it feels like, you know, Elon Musk didn't get the, you know, the briefing on the regulatory uh, environment that he might be entering. It is really fascinating. What would, I, well, first of all, the deal is not done. We have to go through due diligence. I'm shocked by, I'm not shocked because I knew this. But the regulatory hurdles that Elon Musk has to go through to own a chunk of the communications infrastructure or digital public square or whatever you want to call it are remarkably low, just from that point of view. He's actually been guilty of violations against the SEC code, including fraud, and yet he's still able to take this off the table um, as long as he has the financing and as long as the uh, due diligence is passed. That's, ex- that's an extraordinary position to find ourselves in. So that's the first thing to say. And the second thing I completely agree with David on, the t- on, on is he going to really sit down with the trust and safety people and say, wow, your job is really hard. I hadn't realized how nuanced it was going to be. No, I don't think there's anything I've seen about him that suggests that he is at all interested in the details or the nuance mm-hmm. or learning any of this. And actually, I think the thing that you have to watch really carefully is just how the interplay between his ownership of uh, particularly Tesla, I mean, maybe SpaceX and Tesla, but particularly Tesla, and owning a platform where he is saying that he's committed to uh, free speech, how that's going to play out for him in the markets, because my guess is it's going to play out very, very badly. China is a really major market for Tesla. I cannot see the CCP thinking it's a great idea to have uh, Chinese state media branded and flagged all over Twitter and stories about Uyghur uh, concentration camps um, proliferated through the world's free press. What happens when they say, you know, move your factory or cleanse your platform? 
And I, I and so it should it go through. I think what we're going to see is the highly undesirable consequences of accumulation, where you allow entities or individuals that have broad conflicting interests to amass, for want of a better word, uh, what we might call media properties. So I really think, again, I'm sorry, I'm a European, I keep going back to regulation, but this comes back to just a total lack of foresight about ownership rules, I think. One observation is that, you know, before Elon Musk, it was the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund, right? So uh, it's not like, you know, this was a collectively owned public good until, you know, until this week, right? Um, Now that, you know, that said, I totally agree that it's a crazy thing that our public squares are owned by plutocrats and um, they can just, you know, trade these things around without any regulatory oversight uh, at all. Um, and I also worry, like Emily, about you know the way that uh, other powerful you know countries or entities might be able to influence Twitter's policies uh, because Musk owns uh, Musk owns Twitter. There's also a ton of data, right, that Twitter has about all of its users, including the content of DMs, because direct messages aren't end to end encrypted on Twitter, and that is you know really really sensitive data that could be misused or shared in all sorts of, you know, all, all sorts of ways. And, you know, I'm not sure that that's why Musk has gone down the road he has. But once he recognizes that he has all this data, you know, I guess we have to see what he what he decides to do with it. Uh, and that that I think is at least as concerning as you know the possibility that he'll change the rules uh, relating to speech on the platform. So there's one area where Musk and Obama agree, and that's that neither of them seem to like anonymity. You know, uh, Obama had a line about anonymity being a problem, and Musk, even in his statement yesterday announcing his purchase, said something about authenticating users. And, and the authentication of users actually goes to privacy concerns that mm-hmm. Jamil was just talking about. So I, I actually think, I know it sounds like in a way it's in the weeds, but it it really goes to a kind of conventional wisdom that is really problematic around you know one way in which we communicate which is anonymously and that's been one of the real values of twitter and so i think i think there's just there's the two events you know obama's speech and musk's purchase both highlight the absolute need for more nuance in this conversation but like to you know to plea for nuance and this environment, I know it's like tilting at windmills for sure. Well, I know I can expect nuance from the three of you. So I thank you all for speaking to me today. Thank, thank you, you. Justin. Thanks, Justin. Cool. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at Tech Policy Press. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to my guests. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.